Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. It's hard to believe, but today we've reached the end of this season about the people of Scotland. Over the past few months, we've visited Glasgow and Edinburgh, Oban, Fort William, Perthshire and Galloway, and spoke to people who call these places their home. We've heard about histories that are often overlooked and the tours and experiences that are trying to rectify this. We've learned about Scottish wildlife and the geology of the Highlands, went out there swimming in a freezing cold loch and kayaked along the coast in search of delicious wild foods. And that last topic is what we'll explore in today's conversation with my guest, Mark Williams. You've already heard a bit about Mark in last week's story. He was one of the people who led the kayaking and foraging trip I did a few weeks ago in Galloway. If you haven't listened to the story in tune yet, do go back and listen for a taste of that experience. A few weeks after our trip, I connected with Mark on Zoom and asked him to tell us more about his story. We'll hear about what goes into being a full-time forager, get some tips for people who'd like to start gathering wild foods, and gain an insight into what makes foraging such a fun and rewarding experience. Let's hear it from Mark and listen to his story. Why don't you start by introducing yourself, telling us your preferred pronouns and a little bit about what you do and who you are. I'm Mark Williams. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I teach about foraging and wild food. 
um, I suppose it's my hobby and my job, which is kind of lucky. And also you have to be careful that you don't lose your hobby once your hobby becomes your job. But that's going okay. I've been uh, teaching about foraging for about 30 years. So I suppose I'm the, the old guard of, uh, of what is now a kind of, uh, I hesitate to call it a sector, but it's a surging area of uh, excitement and uh, interest, uh, you know, partly fueled by lockdown and COVID when people have a little bit of time to slow down and look at what's around them. And partly uh, because foraging fits really well, surprisingly well with social media. I call it cyber foraging. And, uh, you know, the, the, the here and now, like finding something and sharing it, a place and a moment actually connects really powerfully on, on social media. So foraging and cyber foraging is, I've coined it, is, uh, is quite a thing now on, on social media and it translates really well. So uh, yeah, um, that's what I do. I teach uh, mostly uh, on guided walks about wild plants, fungi, and seaweeds. And I consult with businesses, um, drinks businesses, or chefs, or schools, or TV production companies, that kind of thing about wild food and foraging. And uh, also during lockdown, I started a mentoring service, like a one-to-one -one mentoring service for people just looking to connect. Uh, did that online, and that was really, really wonderful, just helping people to just get one, some one-to-one -one tuition. And yeah, it was really amazing. I just started it on a pay-as-you-can-afford basis during lockdown. And mostly I was doing it for free, but it was, uh, it was really nice. I had a really good good vibe and lots of people kind of amazing to see how fast people came on with their, with their foraging skills. So yeah, lots of different strands to what I do, but basically it's uh, I'm a cheerleader for wild food and uh, reconnection with nature through through foraging, I suppose. And is that something you've always wanted to do? Or, you know, did you always know this could be your job, you know, to be a full-time forager? Or Gosh, was foraging no. something you've discovered later? No, not at all. Um, that is not something you get told about in careers advice service at school, is it? You know, it's like, uh, you know, um, you're going to go to university and because uh, you because you can. And uh, and what are you going to do at university? And I was like, oh, right, okay. So, so there was no choice in that, was there really? Not for me anyway. And uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to fall off that uh, that uh, rather dubious path and uh, did lots of really interesting jobs. But no, at no point did I think uh, this is going to be my my actual full-time job. I remember somebody saying to me once, um, I worked in this restaurant and uh, one of the owners was quite fond of me when I was when I was 21. He says, Mark, why, why don't I take you? Uh, you can like you and I can travel around the world and I'll take you to mushroom season at any place in the world and you can just like be a full-time mushroom forager you know and I remember thinking oh yeah how wonderful and how crazy and how absurd I think he was trying to seduce me actually but anyway I resisted and uh but now I kind of do that and uh it's like yeah it's like all the best jobs you kind of evolve into it and it evolves into you and uh, I only really went full-time doing it about 10 or 12 years ago now but I've done guided walks in my spare time for 30 35 years so i found an old black and white photo somebody sent me from uh from the aaron banner i grew up on the isle of aaron and uh that's where i started did my first foraging walks and somebody sent me this black and white picture of me uh looking kind of scarily young i was like oh right i guess yeah i used to look quite different and um <laughs> teaching teaching and and the, and the thing that happened on that walk uh, i did it for free for the national trust and a hundred people turned up on the walk and that was my first ever guided walk. So it was like proper baptism of fire sort of thing and uh, make or break kind of time. And I guess I'm lucky that I have a big booming voice and, um, and you know, more confidence than I should have uh, in general, or I did back then. And I got away with it. And uh, yeah, and ever since I've just enjoyed yeah teaching and connecting and 
I quite like the theatre of a guided walk on foraging where you kind of unveil one thing after another and kind of take, see people's perspectives on what's around them changing as they as they kind of follow along on the walk and absorb new things and different people connecting with different elements that they're that they're meeting yeah it's, it's magical and do you have any favorite plants to forage because there's obviously so much and you know like you say there's so much knowledge behind all of this because there are so many different kinds of plants and and different yeah. kinds of things and foods you can find do you have anything that particularly interests you <laughs> Um, I always say generally my favorite thing to forage is whatever I'm foraging at the time <laughs> because you're so in the moment and it's so kind of connected with it. It's and 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 yeah, I don't know, different things that you forage have like they stir you in different ways, you know, like there's something exciting about hunting for a sep uh or porcini in the in the kind of in the early autumn, and that's a kind of like big game hunting almost kind of vibe that's really exciting and you don't know what to expect. But then there's like visiting my favorite slow slow bush uh you know just down the road you know 10 10 minutes walk from my door and going oh yeah hello old friend how are you you know so like uh, it is literally like totally different emotions and different feelings and i mean i gather probably 500 different types of wild harvests over the course of a year and i would say every single one of them is my favorite at the time i'm doing it because it's, if you were to say what is my favorite one to eat it would be quite different from my favorite one to harvest, you know, my favorite mm -hmm. one to harvest is about the place and the moment and where it takes me and the time of year, you know, whereas like in terms of eating, some things are definitely, uh, definitely up there tastier. So you'll have to be more specific with your question. <laughs> but if you want me to pick out like uh, two, three things, what, what about one seaweed and one plant and one, um, and one mushroom? That's about as good as Let's I'm going to Let's go get. for that then. Okay. Yes. One of each. Uh, okay. Well, well, the plant, actually, that's really hard as well. <laughs> You've said those rules. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it changed the rules already. <laughs> um, no, in terms of plants, it would have to be common hogweed, uh, Heraclium spondylium, because it's like amazing uh, vegetable. It's incredible wild spice. It has all sorts of complicated things around it that people have to tune into. And I, I kind of love that about it. It's like, you know, foraging is not like going to the shops. You need to connect and you need to learn and you need to invest some time. So I kind of admire it because it has some challenges. It has some kind of dodgy relations but also because it's incredibly delicious. And also it, it teaches us that most important thing about foraging, that it's like, this is a hyperabundant plant that's around us all the time and, and is ignored by 99.9% .9 of the population. So it teaches us that, you know, foraging is not about seeking or searching. It's about recognition and, uh, and, and getting to know things and, and connection. Uh, so, so that would be common hogweed for that reason. Gosh, I feel really bad for sea kale now. <laughs> sea kale is delicious, but oh, so is common hogweed. So you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you met them both on our on our trip. Um, well, yeah, sea kale has yeah, it's definitely better looking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gorgeous plant. It is. Yeah. 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 What about seaweeds? Uh, oh, seaweed. Oh gosh, that's that's really difficult as well. You know which but, uh, one is my favorite? Pepper dulse. Yeah, you're a pepper dulse junkie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pepperdolls definitely wins the flavored steaks. There's no doubt about that. But I think I go with sea lettuce mm -hmm. uh, because it's so beautifully iridescently green, and it reminds me of that connection of 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 you know all our all our terrestrial plants. They really started off as algae, uh, as seaweeds essentially, uh, which came ashore. So the greenness and the, there is a vibrancy to the greenness of sea lettuce that is just like. It's, it's almost better than beech leaves in the early spring. You know, it's like, it's, <laughs> mm. it's mega. And it tastes amazing. And it's incredible in pickles. And when you dry it, 
and it just gives me a little kind of even though it's really common and it's everywhere like when i'm picking it i'm just like oh yeah yeah hello <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> hello old friend good to see you again you know so yeah um yeah definitely uh, uh sea lettuce well again lots of contenders <laughs> and mushrooms that's the the, the glorious third group of things you can oh, forage uh, mushrooms are my first foraging love so it's really that's even harder it's like picking your favorite child or something but i have because i've written about this on my website and um and it has to be hen of the woods which is this giant sprawling thing it can get you know it takes two people to lift one up it's this most beautiful series of fan-like corals all overlapping and interweaving these beautiful kind of brown and gray and silver markings it grows a really massive and it's uh, mildly parasitic on old oak trees and what i love about it is it's not super common around me so like, i know sometimes find one or two a year i mean one's enough like for your entire year's supply if you, if mm. you need to uh, so it's kind of like hard enough to find that it's exciting it feels like a hunt you know like a vegetarian stalking kind of thing um and and delicious and it's also medicinal and uh, just a magical beautiful thing to find so so many good things about it yeah that's a great choice that's a great yeah. choice so now we've got your three favorite and we won't tell any of the others that they didn't make the list <laughs> <laughs> i can actually hear some spignol in the kitchen getting sulky <laughs> what about me like pickled chanterelles in my fridge going oh well then <laughs> we'll go off <laughs> um i really like what you said about you know how foraging gets you in touch and in connection i guess with the place that you go and and seek for these things and, and hunt mm. for these things in a way and that sense of place you get from being there and having these great success moments of finding something you can eat and that tastes mm. delicious and we were talking earlier a little bit about, you know, your past trips to the Isle of Isla. And you said you have a map, a mental map in your head about all the places that you've went to to forage and the foods you found. How does that traveling aspect come into your work? You know, what does that mean to you when you travel and forage at the same time? Does that change how you experience places or or how you how you feel about certain places? Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose there are two, kind of two types of foraging. One, and I, one is the sort of familiarity foraging that I alluded to earlier on, where you're kind of going and meeting something. That's normally the case with lots of plants or perennial plants, or, you know, they're kind of in the same place or like trees. So that's more about like going to your favorite place, like my local wild garlic spot. You know, I go there year after year, carefully look after it. So that's that kind of like long-term intimate friendship kind of thing with a relationship with a plant and then the other type of foraging is that is the sort of seeking searching kind where there's something you're looking for and that's why i suppose uh, foraging for fungi is a little bit more uh, kind of exciting because even if you go into a spot that you know where they are if you could be one day out and they're not there or you have to kind of search around the trees a little bit more you know so it's that that kind of searching thing and, and when i visit a new location if i go on holiday somewhere it is about like connecting with that place through its um through its plants and its fungi. And I think that is like, you know, I suppose as humans, we we connect visually, don't we, with landscape and socially with people and the stories of places and so on. But uh, actually, I've taken out people on private bookings and I, I just think it's such a wonderful way to get to know a local area. I took out an American couple and uh, they said, oh, whenever we go anywhere, the first thing we want to do is like learn about its plants because that's what that place is. They're the things that model that place. That's why it looks the way it is. That's why people eat the, the things around there. You know, it's, it's, you know, so that 
that deep intimacy with with plants is always my kind of entry point into a landscape. I mean, obviously you go, wow, look at the mountains kind of thing, but then you kind of dive in and look at like, you know, what what's growing there. So yeah, we're going up the West Coast next week and uh, I think we're up on uh, Loch Torridon going up to Ben A. Um, and uh, it was great. We kind of walked up the mountain, not all the way, I think it was a bit of a dodgy day, but it came out nice on the way down and was swimming in that beautiful gorge. I'm guessing you've probably been up that, that trail. Anyway, there's a little plant, it's not very common in Scotland, called rose root, you know, and, and that was just growing in this amazing kind of canyon. I love swimming in wild in, in mountain rivers. That's my kind of other favorite thing, <laughs> apart from foraging. And um, yeah, so I, I got to combine the two and you have to kind of swim across this pool, climb up this waterfall, and there is this rose root in this place. And that is my like dream holiday thing. It's like that deep connection and and I suppose when in looking for plants and, and finding them, you don't always find what you think you might find. So it leads you on to other things as well. So it's like a, it unlocks places. Mm. And uh, yeah, so the first thing I, I do, and, and I think it's a really nice way to connect with a place is to learn about its flora. And I, I also think, you know, animals are amazing, uh, but we kind of over obsessed with them, but this kind of deer and eagles in Scotland, isn't it? And, you know, the kind of big cats and, and, and other bits of the world. If you look at documentary programs, you get 50 programs about great big animals to every one about plants. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so I, I just want to redress that balance a little bit. It's one of my little bugbears. I love a, love a bit of David Attenborough, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, why don't we have more of those, like, you know, much cheaper to make detailed programs about plants and fungi? And hopefully that's coming now as well. And in many ways, also very useful to people, because I think there's one thing to learn about plants, but having gone out on a foraging walk with you, you know, you see a plant and you immediately think about all the things you can make from it and how it can be used and how it can be sustained and how it can be foraged sustainably as well and, yeah. and making sure that it's still there for years to come. And I think, yeah, I like what they're kind of the unsung heroes, aren't they? They're everywhere plants. Yeah. And we need them and we we need them to create oxygen. We need them to eat. Absolutely. But somehow they get drowned out in, you know, we don't look down enough, I guess. Yeah. We, we only look into the yeah. distance. So, yeah. I think there's a slight danger that that, that nature becomes other, like something mm. that we look at mm. uh, and admire and protect because, you know, we have messed up our planet. So, oh, don't touch that, you know. But it's like, it, it's touching and that the intimacy that foraging brings that actually really safeguards plants, mm. you know. Like, the, you know, people, you know, I, I, have, I have friends who, who like were in tears, floods of tears just when a bit of plantation forestry got felled because they picked amazing mushrooms under that plantation forestry. Mm. You know, that, that deep connection that that, that, that that plant knowledge or fungal knowledge makes with the place. And, you know, foragers aren't obsessed with whether it, things are native or non-native or anything like that. It's about connecting with, with what, what is actually there. And uh, yeah, that kind of deep intimacy with a, with a, with a place is, is, is kind of the magic, yeah. Absolutely. I think it gives you a sense of maybe ownership is the wrong word, but a, a much deeper relationship with with the land and the resources that are there. Like you say, rather than just saying, oh, someone else protect this and no one touch it and someone else will take care of this mm. is actually you engaging with that landscape directly. Yeah. And yeah. so in, in many ways, you know, I see it in, in the woodland behind our house. There's so much litter everywhere. And I think it's because people don't have that relationship with with that environment and that landscape and it's yeah. such a shame yeah. because i think it just needs you know walking through and seeing all the bluebells picking some of the wild garlic knowing what the weeds are that are growing everywhere and yeah. it just makes it a lot more personal and gives you a direct connection with the place 
And I think it starts as well with being comfortable in, in those habitats. So, you know, there's amazing stuff going on now with Forest School. Uh, but, you know, why, why isn't this stuff in the actual national curriculum, you know? You know, it's like, like, let's get kids, let's teach kids how to shit in the woods, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, that should be top of the curriculum as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, but also that, you know, like being comfortable outside, being comfortable in the in the woods, being understanding some of the plants you know not you're not going to know everything but you're you know respecting that that and 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 that just gives you a sense of perspective of your place in the world i guess so uh yeah let's get into schools absolutely if someone is to come and visit scotland or someone from scotland goes anywhere else really the, the question is very broad what are some good tips or best practice tips for people who are new to an area and want to forage and want to explore some of the plants that are around? What are some good ways they can get started? Yeah, um, I, I realise that you, you kind of uh, have a, a focus on people who are visiting uh, mm. Scotland, uh, but I, mean, I, would, I would say wherever you are, like foraging starts at home and it's about recognising what is immediately around you. Mm. And you'll actually find that if you go out and walk down any green space near you, even if you live in the middle of a city, even if you've got a slightly um, you know, littered wood behind your house, you know, there's still amazing plants doing amazing things in those locations and you can go out and connect with what's immediately around you. And that, I think that, that opens up lots of doors because plants are normally in family groups. You know, you'll start to recognize members of the carrot family or, you know, different types of, uh, of members of the daisy family or so, things like that, you know? So, you know, like what, one bit of knowledge opens up doors to other bits of knowledge as well. So start at home. And then if you go to a new area, I mean, that is really exciting. Um, you know, maybe connect with a local person and uh, or, you know, somebody with a bit of local knowledge and ask them, well, what, what do you pick around here? And of course, in the UK, up until about, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, most people would have just talked about um, brambles or slows for slow gin, maybe a few people about wild garlic. But really, the big surge of knowledge of, of, of rediscovering that knowledge in the UK has come in the last sort of 10, 15 years, I suppose. Um, but yeah, ask local people what, what they're doing and, and also try and if you want to harvest stuff, I mean, it's not always very practical if you're on holiday um, because you might not be catering for yourself, etc. Um, but, uh, you know, try and try and get a feel for what there's lots of <laughs> yeah. because there is a danger of that kind of slight colonial aspect of you turn up somewhere and say, oh, there's loads of this. And, you know, you might be there for a few days. You don't really know anything about that. You know, you need to observe things for quite a long time before you actually know what is an appropriate way to behave around them. It's it's like building a relationship with with with, with anyone or anything. Mm. It's, it's you have to get to know it. And mm. if you just turn up and like you're right in its face, then uh, then you might make mistakes or 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 do things um, kind of carelessly. So uh, yeah, get to know an area gently and uh, and and take an interest. Ask local people. Come out with a on a guided forage, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely a good good way to do it. And you know, that's something. I was so excited about that, that the foraging trip and the kayaking trip we did a few weeks ago. And if listeners haven't listened to last week's story yet, definitely go back and listen to that for an insight or an experience of what it's like to be on a foraging and kayaking trip with Mark. Obviously, that trip required an incredible amount of preparation from your side. You know, you, you foraged in advance to have enough food for, what, 12, 13 people we were? You know the area really well. You, you, I kind of guess you had an idea of what plants you will, you will show us and what parts of your knowledge you'll need to access over the weekend. 
And yet the walks felt really spontaneous and it was always a kind of like, oh, let's see what we can find here. And, and you could tell, or I could tell, you were discovering things alongside us. You just knew what they were. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm wondering how much does preparation matter to the work that you do, especially with the foraging walks? Or is it very often that it is a surprise and you just have all this knowledge that you can access? Yeah, I think when I, when I first started doing regular kind of guided foraging walks, I would get quite anxious if somebody said, oh, could you come here and do a foraging walk? And I didn't know that area. And that's totally, you know, I don't, I don't beat myself up about that. I think that's totally right because, you know, you're like, oh, well, anything could be there and what's my knowledge? And but it's about, I suppose you grow into that confidence in your own knowledge that there may be surprises out there, but that's okay. You know, like I, I love it when we're on a walk and I don't, I find something and I don't know what it is because that, you know, like that, I hate being seen as some sort of guru. I just have a bit of knowledge, a bit more knowledge than most people about a very niche subject, you know? And so, so when, when your teacher so, so, so finds something and they're like, oh, wow, this is exciting. I don't know what this is. I think that's quite liberating for the people who are there to learn as well. It's like, okay, right. Nobody knows all of this. You know, this is like learning is a journey, isn't it? It's a journey of discovery and there's always more to learn. So I, I now love, um, and I suppose that comes with, you know, having done guided walks for 30 years or so around foraging. I just love going to new areas. And I know I can go anywhere with any green space. Talking about going and doing some work with a drinks brand over in Luxembourg at the moment. And the mm. guy keeps sending me photos of the local area saying, oh, come on, maybe we could go here and we're supposed to be taking out some bartenders. I'm like, yeah, that'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, sometimes I have a little look on Google Maps and make sure it's, you know, not a monoculture or whatever. And and he sends them more, and he's like, oh, what, what do you think we'll find here? I was like, well, I don't know, but it'll be interesting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and uh, so I, I guess that's about relaxing, me relaxing into, into my kind of comfort zone and knowing what I know. And I now love going to new areas, and I, I, do, I do scheduled walks where I take people out. And when I do them in, in my local area around uh, Galloway in southwest Scotland, I know what we're going to find. I, I have routes that I've used before, and I sometimes tweak them and change them. But to be honest, the, the routes that I, I use for most of my walks, I've kind of developed them. And it's there's a certain theater to them. I'm like, I, this walk is great. And I'd only be changing it for my sake, not for the sake of the clients who come along. Because I know on this walk, we'll meet all those things they want to know. Um, lots of those things that they should know. And, 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 and a ton of those cool things that, that we might talk about or we might not. You know, those, those kind of different layers of, 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 of what people come along on, a, on any kind of guided walk uh, are, are interested in. So um, I, I love the sort of theatre of a walk. It's like, yeah, and you always have a few poisonous things as well because they're the ones that people really want to know about. You know? Um, so that's the bulk of my work is like guided walks like that and, and often in places that I'm familiar with to, to a greater or lesser degree. But what's joyful about the paddling trip, uh, the one I did with you was in my local kind of region, but um, it's more spontaneous because mm. we're, we're also subject to the tides and the winds and uh, the, uh, how fit people are feeling when we want to stop for lunch. Uh, we had a few near misses there as well <laughs> in the tides. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so that means it's like, well, let's go and have a quick look at what's here, you know? And, and actually that works really well for, for, for the people learning because it's like, if you do a three-hour guided walk with me, we'll be 30, maybe 40 different plants. That, that mm. was actually way too much you know, imagine speed dating and meeting 30 <laughs> or 40 people in, in three hours, you know, you wouldn't remember half of them, would you? So, and, and, and it's just like that with plants, you just, you know, you're getting introductions and it's a bit overwhelming. Whereas on the paddling trip, it's spread out over three days. It's like, you know, here's a little chance to go and have a look at seaweeds and, uh, you know, in different contexts and, mm. uh, 
and it, it just changes it and makes it slightly those different elements are a little bit broken up and slightly more memorable i suppose i'm guessing um i need to give you a test and see what what actually sunk in oh please don't <laughs> please don't well there's a few things that sunk in and i think one of the things i really like is that because we're on that trip, there are, I guess, because if you do a walk, you know, if I joined one of your foraging walks, you would be either in the woodland or on the coast or in a meadow. Whereas I felt that we did a lot of different things. So we went and yeah. saw the hedgerow plants. We went and saw the seaweeds. We looked at what grows on the edges of the of the sandy beaches or the stone beaches. You know, it was it was really interesting to think about groups of plants that live in one certain habitat. Yeah. And the duration of the trip gave us that opportunity to explore a few different habitats like that and, and the wetlands as well, for example, with the reeds. So that was all that was all really cool. And we're actually going to listen to a clip now from one of the follow-up foraging walks on the Galloway coast that I did with Mark. But, uh, and then there's another plantain here. These guys here, see them all in the cracks. That's oh, yeah, all no, nice yeah. one planting. Yeah. So they they have a similar flavour to the um, sea plantain, also coastal, but you know very pretty, mm. Mm, really juicy and tender. So yeah, really lovely little um, microclimate. Uh, but what's what I really brought you up here to show you is just over here, <laughs> last bit of clambering. Yeah. So this is um, this is Scott's lovage. Oh wow! This is a member oh, of the uh, of the carrot family, or the APAC. Um, but this is a particular little delicacy of Scotland, I suppose. Um, it's uh, Ligistum scoticum, I think is, is the Latin name for it. So it is particularly uh, Scot. You wouldn't get this in the south of England. And Galloway is really interesting because we are, in terms of its uh, distribution in the UK, we're on the cusp of its southern uh, zone here. Okay. Doesn't you don't really find it further south and. Um, what you start finding further south that some of you might met is rock samphire, which loves these kind of cliffs and craggy mm. bits and stuff like that. And uh, this this kind of takes over as you get this far north. And in here here we have a little bit of rock samphire in places and a little bit of this, a bit of both. But it's like intense lovage, celery, mm. and sort of fenugreek. This contains a compound called sotolon, which is also present in fenugreek. So it has this like really intense uh, aromatic quality. Um, there's enough here to all have a, have a taste. You don't need very much. Uh, I'll hand some out rather than you all uh, mm. clambering around. This is going to have like umbelliferous uh, flower stems, right. like like the rest of the carrot family. You can see last yeah. year's just hanging on in there. We don't all need that okay, much. It's uh, enough to just have a taste. It's uh, slightly bitter as well, but really lovely, just sort of chopped uh, lightly and just added as a kind of piquant seasoning. Do you eat the leaves or the stems? Mm, um, both, yeah, yeah. Just sort of shred up the leaves and and, and scatter them on on dishes or, and the stems. Yeah. I, I always like the stems because they've got a bit more juice and a bit more crunch. But mm. it's quite full on. It's like um, yeah. you know, it's um, not not a gentle flavour. <laughs> the way if you get the seeds later on, uh, the seeds definitely have this uh, really kind of intense, almost fenugreek kind of flavour. Mm. But uh, I particularly mm. love this little one here because I'd never found it in this little area of the coast and. Yeah, I just sort of like somebody said, Oh, yeah, there's a really interesting plant up in the rocks mm. there, and it, here it is in its own little, yeah, you know, it's got its own little zone going on, yeah, hasn't yeah, it? Isn't yeah. it beautiful? Mm. It's it's coastal only, uh, yeah, only coastal, yeah. Um, you'll get this uh, on the east coast as well. I found this in the areas around East Lothian, like Tittingham, and you know, kind of rocky outcrops, but sometimes also growing out in kind of, a, in the sort of sandier areas at the, above the shoreline. Really lovely, yeah, Scots lovage. Mm. 
Okay, we'll just make our way back, back round and, and down now. Now, let's take a quick detour and hear more about our sponsors. We're back and I think it's time for a little topic change and I would love to talk to you a bit more about the region that we explored on our walk and, and that is local to you, the Galloway Coast. You said you grew up on the Isle of Arran, um, which isn't too far, but I guess I would love to know what brought you to Galloway and what you liked about it enough that you actually made it your home. Yeah, um, yeah, I grew up on uh, Arran. Insofar as anyone grows up on a small Scottish island, it's kind of like never, never land. And uh, yeah, so, uh, but an amazing place to grow up. And actually, my daughter uh, raised my daughter there as well. Uh, and then there's lo- lots of wonderful things about living on an island, but also like that ferry is is that all the romance of the ferry for holidaymakers. You get the you get the other side of that when you live there, and it mm. kind of starts to restrict your opportunities and so on. So I was I was really glad when when I did move away. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, I kind of came down to Galloway with a partner at the time. Uh, we're no longer together, but she she was from farming stock down in Galloway. So yeah, kind of thought yeah, let's let's go and explore a new bit of Scotland. And I was a bit <laughs> it was quite funny when I first came down here. I was slightly scathing because of course Aaron. Just got these wonderful mountains, like not massive Monroes, but like they look like Monroes, don't they? And they're really alpine kind of vibe and rocky outcrops. And I did lots of um, mountaineering and uh, and hill walking, and uh, I was in the mountain rescue team over there. So I was always a bit scathing about the, the rounded hills of Galloway, you know, which are basically just a bit older and they've had those jaggedy tops worn off. Mm. And it's you know it's not quite got that high drama that you get uh, further up the Scotland's west coast. Uh, so I was I was jokingly scathing about it, only only jokingly, just to wind up my partner. To be honest, <laughs> well, the Merrick <laughs> but, um, is almost a Monroe. It's quite hot. Quite oh yeah, so seven hundred, seven hundred or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it is. But they're always, they're all quite rounded on top, yes. aren't they? Down here, I mean, it's lovely. Actually, don't get me wrong. As I get older, I'm really glad of that. <laughs> you know, it's like my, <laughs> my climbing days are a little bit behind me now. But uh, actually, um, I mean, I, I was only really joking, and it's just stunning down here. It's like. Yeah, the combination, the patchwork of hills, but this like the big dramatic coast, but salt marsh estuaries. So, you know, lots of big tidal estuaries, mm. rocky coast, cliffs, loads of farmland, but also, and then we've got the massive Galloway Forest Park, which is actually mostly plantation forestry um, in the, the bit that's generally referred to as a forest park. But we also, it doesn't get talked about as much as it should, but we have some of the biggest area of, uh, ancient oak woodland in Scotland, in in Galloway, up, up the Cree Valley, and uh, you know lots of amazing pockets of of deciduous woodland and and so on. So th- this kind of combination of things, all fairly close together, uh, means that where I am in, in Galloway and I'm in Gatehouse of Fleet, just means I have like literally everything on my on my doorstep. I look out the window now, and you know I can see Ken's more of Fleet with this big whale back of a mountain, and where the, you know there's loads of deer up there. But then there's like lots of this mixed deciduous forest just across the Fleet Valley where I'm looking out. And that's where I can actually look at spots where I pick particular types of mushroom. You know, yeah, that's, <laughs> I'll be there in a month's time picking chanterelles, uh, you know. And I could just about see the sea from where, where we look down the coast as well to where we were paddling. So, you know, it's literally all there. And with it, mm. you know, if I use a bike, I, you know, so I have like a six to 10 mile range on a bike, say, without break, busting a gut, you know, like all those things are right there, you know? Yeah. And that means that the, the we talk about landscape. But I talk more about foodscapes. Mm. Uh, so all those different kind of niches and foodscapes are all there, pretty close together. And there's like a pattern to my year as to how I interact with them. So I kind of 
start off in early spring in May with the birch sap rising and kind of mixed mixed woodland with birch trees, getting the birch sap and the really early spring plants and the wild garlic. And then as we move it through spring into what I call like high spring, which we're, as we talk, we're kind of going between high spring and summer, all the wild garlic and all those really vibrant things start to die back. But then the, the coast comes alive. Mm. Okay, so then you get these big, juicy, succulent coastal plants like the sea kale and sea beet that we met. But also then later in summer, as they start to get bitter, there's another wave that starts on the salt marsh that we saw the very beginnings of on our trip. So there's this kind of, uh, I think the ge ge geographer's word for it is transhumance. Uh, it's, it's like about how people move through landscapes according to the seasons mm. and according to the food resources. And I kind of do that in a mini way. Obviously, I'm based in one place, but times gone by, our, our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have followed those things very clearly, you know, from that inland, uh, you know, to the, where the food resources were and back into the woods for the berries and things and roots and stuff in the autumn. They might not have been so interested in the mushrooms, but I certainly am. So, so I, lo I love that kind of, that's how my year pans out. And at the moment, we're in this, slightly sad phase where all the wild garlic, which is everywhere, is starting to go yellow and stinky. Um, you know, all that easy kind of greenery. Um, and uh, and then some of the big succulent coastal plants like sea beet, these wild spinaches are starting to develop a bit of bitterness. So within, the, you know, that's like, oh, bye-bye, see you next year, you know? <laughs> and then hello, salt marsh, you know, marsh samphire and sea blight, sea aster, like these incredible succulent salty plants. And then just as they're getting a little bit fiddlier to pick, then the mushrooms kick off and I'm, you know, so that's the kind of pattern of my year, I suppose, the pitter patter. And then the winter is a lovely rest. After all that. <laughs> Well, there's plenty to do then too. Yeah. Well, that's when all the the pr food preservation, I guess, or partially you'll have to do it on the fly as you go throughout the season. But I guess in yeah. the winter, then it's about turning yeah. the things that you've made into more other things and actually using it all up. And, yeah. Definitely there's some kind of rapid preservation that happens when I'm, you know, between the, I was actually just sort of slight, getting slightly sentimental about lockdown last year, notwithstanding all horrible things about COVID. But I have time to preserve so many of those things that, There's lots of fiddly things in foraging sometimes. Oh, it'd be fun to do that. But when you're busy teaching and running, you know, a normal kind of life that you'd never quite find the time to do. And, and all of those things I managed to do in lockdown, you know, like jars and jars of the little tiny um, capers off the off the wild garlic, the seeds, mm. which are about now, which normally is kind of slightly too fiddly for me, you know, and, like, and then making acorn flour later on. And, you know, you know, all those sort of slightly what I call hardcore foraging jobs that uh, <laughs> are a little bit little bit more uh, time demanding but um actually what's really interesting because we're in southwest scotland we we have a really comparable kind of climate to the very southwest of england like cornwall mm. really um and, and and it's very maritime very warming by the, the sea kind of keeps us warm in the winter and cooler in the summer so i actually can i reckon i could pick wild garlic or chanterelles on pretty much every day of the year in galloway you know wild garlic starts in about january here Uh, and runs through and you can still pick it in high summer in a really shady bit of woodland and then uh, around about the start of june is when the chanterelles start and i can i pick them right into january sometimes you know or the or onto the winter chanterelles maybe so those those two kind of iconic wild harvests actually span the whole year so there's not that much time off but i i do definitely go down a gear come the end of november and uh Yeah, just sit and drink some of the things I've been making. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've had my personal experience with some of those drinks you've made, and they are very mm -hmm. good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, apart from foraging, do you have any favorite spots around Galloway that you really love to visit, or think other people should explore themselves when they come and visit Scotland? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's all amazing. And I think exploring is about doing a bit of discovery yourself. But I also recognize a few a few hot tips are really good as well. <laughs> Just a little word on, uh, I, I teach people how to forage. I don't tell people where to forage, you know, because that it kind of undermines that whole idea. It starts to commodify the wild food. If you tell people, oh, go here, you'll get loads of that. You know, and people ask me, and I've actually written a blog on my website explaining hopefully politely, why I'm not going to tell people where my chanterelle spot is. or Because actually the best times you have with any wild food is when you um, when you actually find it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Fa- I think I remember telling you exactly the same thing on the, on our trip, yeah. And it's it's similar with, with travelling as well. I, I do agree yeah. with that. I think sometimes it's nice to just head out without an aim. You know, on, before we, we met for the kayaking trip, I spent a night on the Isle of Whithorn right. and... I didn't know any anything about that area. I didn't research very much. I just ended up driving there, speaking to someone local, and they recommended a place. So that's where I went. And, you know, I just went from place to place by recommendations or just finding it, stopping and being like, oh, that's that looks interesting. I'll, I'll see what's here. Yeah. So, yeah, that definitely applies. But I am a travel person, you know. <laughs> I do love yeah, my yeah. tips. So even if it's just any, any areas you think are particularly yeah. worth visiting and then exploring independently... Yeah. Well, actually, I think you're right. I think the Machers, where you went, um, mm. which is the big peninsula that runs down from Newton Stewart between Wigton Bay and Loose Bay, runs down to the Isle of Whithorn. I think that's a, a wonderful area to get a flavour of the of coastal Galloway. You know, there's these lovely expanses by the sea where we have loads of succulent plants. Then you've got the rocky coast down by the Isle of Whithorn, a lovely harbour down there, and great for a bit of a van park up by the pub there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's lovely walks there. So like the walk down to the um, St. Ninian's Cave. I don't know if you managed that when you were here. I didn't. I heard about it, but I didn't manage to actually make the walk. But that's yeah. just a reason to come back. Yeah. Well, that's just got it all because it's got the history of St. Ninian, who kind of brought Christianity to a certain extent to Scotland, along with St. Columba. And, uh, you know, he landed down there. And there's, so there's this amazing cave with all historical connections. The walk is walk down this beautiful little hidden valley with amazing wild forest wild foods. And then you come out onto this incredible bay that has all the amazing coastal wild foods. There's a hill fort up here. So you're reminded that this has been lived at so many eras in the past and the kind of prime real estate. That's a really, really beautiful walk, actually. And not a long one, but it has a little bit of everything, I think, that Galloway has to offer. So I'd highly recommend that St. Ninian's Cave Walk. But yeah, all around the back is just exploring. Garleston's rather lovely as well. That's on the other side of, of, the, of the peninsula. And it's a lovely little kind of a, was a fishing village. Not a lot of fishing happens there anymore. But it's probably the most sheltered place in southwest Scotland. So I find figs growing there and wow. tomatoes growing on the beach and stuff like that. You know, yeah. it's kind of, it's like a little hothouse because it doesn't get, it gets all the heat and warmth with none of the exposure. Amazing. Um, so yeah, there's lots of lovely stuff around there. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, if you get into the hills and uh, yeah, get, get away from maybe the plantations, lot, it's great for mountain biking and all that, but the, the Cree Valley woodland um, is incredible. Mm. Uh, you know, like we've got really ancient oak woodlands there. Um, actually, temperate rainforests. People don't think of rainforests as something exotic, but these are sort of temperate uh, rainforests to, to a certain degree. And um, yeah, that, that's beautiful in the, along the Cree Valley between um, uh, Glenluce and uh, Newton Stewart. Lovely, lovely along there. Yeah, and that's nice because I think that's also one of the core core areas of the biosphere, isn't it? The UNESCO biosphere. It is, yes. covers yes. most of Galloway and Southern Ayrshire. Most of Galloway and Southern Ayrshire, yes. Yeah, kind of an interesting kind of nebulous concept, but it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, 
the UNESCO designation. Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm a I'm a certified biosphere business. Um, Fantastic. So, uh, which means you have to kind of take a few boxes for being environmentally conscious and uh, looking after your staff. Well, my, my staff is me. So that's, <laughs> and sometimes I'm quite hard on my staff and sometimes I let them away with murder. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if listeners are interested in learning more about the UNESCO biosphere, I have actually worked with them a few years ago. So I'll link to an article that I wrote about what a biosphere actually is and how you can experience that in Southern Ayrshire and Galloway as well. So you'll find the link in the in the show notes. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask if there's any resources that you can recommend to anyone who wants to get started with foraging that would be useful for people to start. Yeah, there's there's lots out there. But, I mean, I think it's quite good to get a book, a good book. But of course, if you're traveling, that's quite hard to get the right book for your for your particular region. Uh, although if you're really into plants and you're visiting Scotland and you have, if, if you like a really beautiful book, the, uh, Flora Celtica is the most magical encyclopedia of people and plants in Scotland. And it's like it's like deep ethnobotany, but very real as well. You know, they go for everything from, you know, the modern trade in mushrooms to historic uses of seaweed and through all the plants and seaweeds and things like that. And uh, so Flora Celtica would be my, you know, if you come to Scotland and you're a plant person, Mm-hmm. Then and you want to take something magical away, or or, or buy it, but just as you arrive, even better, or buy it a week before you come, you know, uh, and just look through that. That's like amazing for connecting you with the stories of plants and how they interweave with people, uh, but not really a pocket field guide or anything like that. Yeah, so I think we'll we'll park the books, but I would say I, I mean I've tried to make my website Galloway Wild Foods as useful as possible to like novice foragers and more experienced foragers, and I have a resource section on there that has. Some it's a bit out of date, probably. I should do more, but little brief reviews of foraging guidebooks and tips on how to kind of find the right guidebook for you. Because of course, foraging isn't one thing. Some people are really only focused on plants and they're a bit too scared of mushrooms to start down that road just yet. So you know, you need to get the right combination of identification guides, but also that sort of inspiration that that comes. So that that there'll be some tips on 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 my website site Galloway Wild Foods around that in the resources section, but I suppose if you're just coming to an area, then then the internet is just amazing for for, for connecting with all of that. So um, yeah, lots of great foragers out there. Um, in terms of Scotland, my friend Monica Wild has a website. I think you'll find her on Instagram as at Monica Wild. She does lots of stuff, and she comes from a more of a kind of herbalist perspective. Uh, she does lots of medicinal stuff as well, but also very gourmet. And she's just did a whole year eating nothing but wild food and has uh, written a book uh, uh, that she's coming out soon. So that'll be a good read when it comes out. So ch- check out Monica. Lots more kind of widely dispersed sort of foraging uh, folk. If you go to the, we've set up this thing called the Association of Foragers, which is wherever you visit in the UK or Scotland, we have a directory on there. And everyone on the directory either teaches about foraging Maybe not full time like me, but some part time, some a little bit more, some a little bit less. But, you know, in some way kind of earn some of their living out of teaching about foraging or supplying wild foods or using them in their businesses. And there's a directory on there you can put in a region and it will bring you up with the forager. And uh, everyone on there is uh, is, is, is competent and uh, knowledgeable and uh, very friendly. And what you find that uh, foragers are always uh kind of excited to tell you about their stuff you know what I mean and like what's there and things like that as long as you don't ask them where that's it that's the <laughs> way you alienate you know they'll tell you endlessly about how to go and find them and how amazing these things are and what to look for but as soon as you say and oh, where can I go and pick that they'll they'll clam up yeah <laughs> it's like go find it yourself yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah. um, so go on the Associated Foragers website. It's a good start wherever you are in the UK, to be honest. But uh, even in Scotland, it's kind of broken down a little bit regionally as well. So we've got folk up in the in the northwest um, that, that are up there. So yeah, lots of lots of good uh, good stuff. I've also got a long list of um, social media accounts on my website. Maybe you could put a link into that particular page, and that's all my kind of favourite foragers. They're not all Scotland based. So that's why I'm not regurgitating their names just now, because a lot of them are based down south. But of course, the UK is such a small country, really. It's not like foraging in North America, where you need to have actually a very specific regional yeah. foraging guide. Uh, and, you know, what you're finding in the 95% of what you find in the south of England will you find in, in, in the north of Scotland, within if that habitat is still there. So if you're on a rocky bit of coast there down there, then you probably find very similar things on a rocky bit of coast here. And then with, with a few little things that add in bragging rights, you know, so they don't get sweet Sicily down there. So we get to kind of like show off about that up here, but we don't get much <laughs> Alexander's up, uh, down there. So yeah, there's a little bit of that goes on too. But uh, yeah, most mostly it's that, that knowledge is transferable. So any good uh, UK um, foraging uh, guides like Robin Harford has Eat Weeds. That's a really kind of clear a simple uh, kind of guide to lots of different plants. Uh, yeah, lot, lot, lots of nice things, but yeah, yeah. We'll link to some of these in the in the full show notes on the website as well. So we, we have all that in one place. And then finally, what is a good way for people to get in touch with you or keep up with what you're doing, follow you on your foraging adventures and uh, maybe join you for uh, a foraging walk or a workshop as well? Like where Where can they find you? Yeah, they can connect with me um, through my, uh, well, I have a website, Galloway Wild Foods. Yeah, that, that is a kind of large foraging guide. Uh, there's, a, there's hundreds of plants and seaweeds, and I have, just have a whole page on each one with lots of different photos saying, you know, how to idea it, how to, how to connect with it, how to sustainably and thoughtfully uh, harvest it and what to do with it. So, you know, lo- lots of um, free information on there, and there's a comment section. But if you want to kind of follow what I'm up to day to day, I put on, and I think social media is good for sort of prompting people who are maybe earlier on in their foraging journey. Like, oh, look, they're picking such and such. Oh, right. Um, and you might know that plant, but you need to be reminded because you've got a busy city life or something like that, you know? So, uh, uh, yeah, social media is good for that. So I, I am uh, at Mark Wild Food on Instagram and also on Twitter uh, as at Mark Wild Foods and on uh, Facebook, I'm Galloway Wild Foods. For some reason, it's not all very joined up, but uh, yeah. <laughs> most of the most of the posts just spread through the whole the whole lot. So you only need to you only need to follow me on one of those, and uh, yeah. So and I, I suppose it's like I have all my events, upcoming events, more added all the time, listed on my events calendar on my website, and there's a map so you can find out where whereabouts in the UK they are. They do tend to get booked up quite a long way ahead, uh, so uh, I have waiting lists, and because they get booked up quite a long way ahead. It means I quite often get a few cancellations in the week before. So it is worth joining the waiting list for them. Also helps me gauge, you know, maybe I should put on more of these in the future Mm. if I have a long waiting list. But a really nice way, and I think if people are visiting Scotland probably and want to kind of, you know, connect with me and and, and do some foraging and and do some learning is the private booking is is a really good way to do that. So, you know, I could take out a family group. I've had a lovely family from Canada. Oh, it was amazing. And they wanted to make their own gin, not in a commercial way, but just like, yeah, they really loved uh, one of the Scottish gins and they were they're really excited by that. And I'd worked with that, that gin brand over on Isla. So they connect and they, I took them out around me and we looked at all the plants and how you might use them in a gin. 
and they talked about because they lived in the Canadian Shield, so it was like so we had to try and work out which ones were relevant to them, and it was great. And they're going to make it just so we had a lovely afternoon and a, you know tippled on a few things, and uh, so it's a lovely day out. And I, I suppose that's the best way for people who are on holiday to do it because it's quite hard to find my scheduled events meeting up with exactly where you are or mm. where you plan to be. Uh, some people are starting to come just to forage, which is quite, quite nice too. Amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Mark. We'll pop all those links in the show notes so people can find you and follow you and engage with you and learn from you, most importantly, I think. I've learned a lot on the foraging trip and also in today's conversation. I had a really good time. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much for having me. I, I, I love what you do. And it was great to go on that paddling trip with you and, uh, you know, share some wild cocktails with a few too many. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I'll see you around, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Williams. You can find out more about his work and upcoming workshops and events at gallowaywildfoods.com and connect with him on social media. You'll find all these links in the show notes. If our chat has inspired you to go foraging in Scotland or wherever you live, please send us your pictures on social media or via email. We'd love to see what kinds of plants you can find and what you do with them. In this week's newsletter, I'll share some of my favourite recipes and other resources to get you started on your foraging journey. You can sign up via the link in the show notes. And with this, I send you off into our summer break. We are beginning to record episodes for season four this week. And while I don't want to give away any of our locations or guests yet, I can tell you that we will continue to make stories and interviews with people around Scotland. We've got some exciting places and topics lined up for you and I can't wait to share them with you when we're back in September. Until then, follow my adventures on social media or join our email list for some teasers and sneak peeks. If you need more podcasts to listen to while we're away, check out the other shows on the Tremula Network. They're adventure and outdoor podcasts that tell stories a little differently. My current favourite is the On the Outside podcast which discusses outdoor news with a diverse panel of speakers. This season of Wild for Scotland has been written and hosted by me, Cathy Kamleitner. Fran Turowskis is our producer and editor and does all the beautiful soundscape design. Michelle Payne has helped with transcripts and social media. The podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music was composed by Bruce Wallace. Thanks also to all our guests on this season. Lisa Williams, Adele Patrick, Katie Murray, Siobhan Moran, Ian Parsons, Callum McLean and Mark Williams. Until next season, when we travel to many new places in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.